Welcome to We Have This Hope. My name is Emily Curzon. This is a podcast about the study of scripture, the art of remembering, and the practice of telling. On the show, we'll explore the ways God calls his people to remember by studying scripture together, and we'll hear individual stories of hope anchored in the beautiful and ancient practice of remembering. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Today, I have a special guest with me. He's one of my favorite people in the world, and it's my dad, Frank Lester. My dad doesn't use social media, and he doesn't have a platform, and you've probably never heard of him unless you're a part of our family or friends here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But my dad is an incredible man. He has a deep faith that's impacted my life and the life of my family and the life of people around the world. Dad is a lifelong Okie raised in Bristow, Oklahoma by my grandparents, particularly my granddad, who was a lifelong educator and farmer. Dad's a graduate of the University of Oklahoma, Boomer Sooner, where, it, where he met my mom when they were both in pharmacy school. So dad was a pharmacist for how many years, dad? Too long, 40 years. <laughs> 40 years, more than 40 years working in both clinical and retail pharmacy, and he just completed his first year of retirement. Dad's hobbies include taking my mom coffee in the morning, walking the neighborhood and texting me about closing his rings, studying the Bible, and starting projects with his friend Bill and missions. And you'll get to hear a little bit about that today. Today, he's reluctantly agreed to remember and tell the story of his work in Southeast Africa, in Tanzania to be specific, where he's traveled multiple times, serving in medical missions, specifically um, partnering and expanding the church with the Kami people there. And along the way, he's made some incredible and unlikely friendships. God's done a great work in him and in the people there in Tanzania. He's described himself to me as I twisted his arm to do this interview as a man of few words. I don't necessarily agree with that, although I think, Dad, that you're a very thoughtful and intentional speaker. So here we go. Dad, welcome and say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Emily, for having me. This is really fun and exciting and uh I've, I've listened to one of your podcasts, so I do occasionally dip into some internet and social media. But, Am I uh, your favorite podcaster? But you are my favorite podcast, yes. And uh, so um, I'm delighted to be a part of it, and thank you for asking me. A couple of weeks ago, well, no, it was like two weeks, a week ago, you texted me and said, do you want to get coffee? And the kids were at school, and I was doing some work at the house, and I thought, well, yeah, I do. If my dad's going to text me and ask me to get coffee, I better go do it. But it was also a way for me to take my laptop and show you the the app that we use to record podcasts and twist your arm into doing this. So thanks for the coffee. And here we are. Well, as you know, when we do these interviews, I've had a few friends that have shared their story, a, a particular part of their story, but the emphasis is on remembering the work of God in your life. And then in remembering the work of God, telling others what he has done. So it's really simple. It's storytelling with an emphasis on what has God done in your life in the past. So today, I, I think you have a lot of cool, I, I know your whole story. 
So I have the advantage of getting to say, why don't you talk about this? Today, we decided to talk a little bit about your work, your mission work um, over the course of your life. So I want to start by asking you to tell the story of how you got involved in global missions. I probably would say that our first exposure, my first exposure was in the early 1980s. We uh, were part of Asbury Church and we had some, a couple friends, Paul and Sandy Westervelt, who were involved in the missions program at the church. And they asked us if we would like to be a part of that program. And we said yes. And uh, there we were introduced to uh, global outreach, local outreach. We met uh, Marianne Smith and um, we were indoctrinated by uh, an older couple, Cecil and Bonnie Tyree, who had been longtime members of the missions board of the church. And they invited us over to their home and served us dinner and gave us the history of uh, Asbury's involvement in the missions program and the Methodist Church. They just kind of took us under their wing and encouraged us. And it was something that Donna and I became very interested in. I can say that I have always had a soft heart for the unfortunate. Uh, that was ingrained in me by my mother when I was a little kid. My mother grew up in a very poor family, and she always instilled in us. We were very blessed, and my mother always instilled in me that we needed to help other people that were less fortunate than us, and we needed to treat them with respect. One of the things that I'll always remember, and we lived in a small town, and my mother gave some of my clothing to a little boy in my class that was uh, a lot was less fortunate than me. And she warned me, do not say anything to that little boy about, don't go in there and say, that's my shirt that you're wearing. So she taught me to always have dignity and respect for others. And uh, uh, that has stuck with me since I was probably seven or eight years old. And so that's how we got involved in the missions program at, at Asbury, and it just grew. And it was something that both mom and, you know, your mom, Donna, and I really enjoyed, and, and we, just, um, we just gravitated to it. Yeah. When was the first trip that you all took um, to Mexico? And was that yeah, your was, first international trip? Yeah, yes, it was. Uh, that was probably around 1983, 1984. We uh, were involved in a medical mission trip to Chihuahua City, uh, Mexico. We made contact with a physician in El Paso, Texas. He was also a pilot. He would fly a Cessna airplane with groups Incest villages in Mexico and hold medical clinics over the weekend. Donna and I went on one of those trips. We flew into and landed on the ground in the grass on a grass runway. We stayed in a little village and spent the night there and held medical clinics. And it was so rewarding. That was the spark that uh, I have to do this. 
this is really was really special. And also for context, I think because a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are in my demographic, it's worth mentioning that if that trip, the Mexico trip on the Cessna was 1983 or 84, you all had, you were leaving, you know, not leaving, but you like, you had a one-year-old, a one and a half-year-old at the time who was home with what grandparents. So, I mean, that's a big deal for, uh, for me as a mom now, young mom to think about leaving the kids and feeling called to do that kind of work in that part of the world. Yeah. Lauren was about one year old and, uh, she stayed with Donna's parents and uh, I'm not sure what they thought. They may have thought we were crazy, but yeah, you know, we did. We left Lauren, our, our little baby, with our grandparents and flew to Mexico. So cool. It worked out. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about how we get from the 80s and going taking short trips to Mexico while you are still living in Tulsa, Oklahoma and raising your family and going to work every day, you and mom both working as pharmacists, to how you ended up in Southeast Africa in the 90s. So tell me, what was the catalyst or the inspiration for getting involved, learning about Tanzania? We had become regulars on the missions commission, and we had attended some national conferences, and we had been introduced to what was called the Joshua Project 2000. They were a group that were involved in identifying groups of people that had not been exposed to the gospel. And uh, we were introduced to the 1040 window. If you took the world map and you laid it flat on a table and you took a four-inch paintbrush and you just painted a band across the center of the map, you would have the area where most of the people in the world had not been exposed to the gospel. They were trying to mobilize churches to adopt what they called an unreached people group at the time. And my good friend, Bill Abernathy, was involved in the missions program as well. And he had been involved in this Joshua project and he had contacted them. We had had a missions festival in 1993 at our church to emphasize the programs that Asbury was involved in. And he felt like God was calling him and calling Asbury to adopt an unreached people group. And so Bill is an engineer and he's into analysis and study. <laughs> and so he asked me if I'd be willing to work with him to research and identify an unreached people group for Asbury to adopt. I didn't realize what I was getting into at the time. When was that, Dad? We probably started doing research in 1995 and 96, and we just started looking at various unreached people groups. We wanted to identify an area that Asbury was not working in. Asbury Mm -hmm. was involved in Mexico at the time and in in Estonia, but we did not have uh, a presence in Africa at the time. We tried to look at things with an open mind, but we did have a contact in Africa. There was a missionary that Asbury supported, Lowell and Claudia Wurtz, and they had a missions 
emphasis in Western Tanzania, but they were not involved in uh, the area where we considered areas of unreached people groups. So. Yeah. I didn't, I, I've heard those names before, but I, I didn't know that piece of it. Tell me when research evolved into planning the first trip and you agreeing to be a part of it. Like I said, Bill is very analytical. He's very detail oriented. And so we started, we, through our analysis, identified an unreached uh, group of people in Eastern Tanzania, we began contacting anyone that we ever knew that had ever been to Tanzania, that had ever been to Africa. We found some, a missionary couple, uh, Richard and Mary Atkins, who had been active in the area of Tanzania. They happened to be in the United States at the time, and Bill invited them over to his house, and we went over and met with them. And we talked to people on the phone, and but I'll always remember that one evening over at Bill and Claudia's home, we were having dinner with the Atkins, and they had a, a man from Africa that was with them. And we were discussing and telling them all the things that we had discovered and all the things that we knew about Tanzania all the things we knew about these unreached people groups. And the man from Africa said, if you want to know about Africa, you need to come to Africa. You can't mm -hmm. learn about Africa by reading a book. You have to come. And that just drove a dagger through our hearts because we thought we were these really smart Americans and we had figured it all out. We knew all about it. And he said, if you want to know about Africa, you need to come. And wow. so we said, okay, we'll come. But we didn't know where we were going. Tell me about the people group that you all eventually partnered with and how that came to be. We had identified three unreached people groups, the Kami, the Barabayig, and the Baraguru. We had talked to many people, but each time we talked to people, they would say, yes, I know the Kami, but I don't know the Barabayig, or yes, I know the Baraguru, but I don't know the Kami. And we couldn't find anyone that knew all three people groups. And we wanted to try to identify someone that was in Tanzania that we could talk to, that we could go visit, that knew those three groups of people and could maybe lead us or take us into those areas. Inevitably, every time we talked to someone, they didn't know the three groups. And one day I was working and I got a phone call from a man from our church. And he says, Frank, I hear you're talking, you're thinking about going to Africa. And I just met a man that has worked in Africa for many years. And he's a in Minnesota right now, but he's getting ready to go back to uh, Tanzania. He'll be there for just a couple of hours. He's headed to the airport. But if you call him right now, I think he might be uh, someone that could give you some help. 
So at that point we were desperate. And so I just hung up the phone. I dialed this number cold and the Reverend Herb Happerman through the telephone. He was a Lutheran missionary that had his 30 years in Africa, in Tanzania. And I said, Reverend Hefferman, have you ever heard of the Kami people or the Barabayig or the Bar Guru? And he said, yeah, I know all three groups. We've been working there. If you'll come, if you would like to come, I will host you. After I uh, picked myself up off the floor, I said, we'll be in touch with you. And that's how we ended up meeting wow. Herb Hofferman, a Lutheran missionary that had been working there for years. And that's how we began. And then wow. we started planning our trip because the man said we had to go. <laughs> oh, so I love hearing this as an adult because I watched it play out as a little girl and a teenager. If it was 1997, I was 11 when you went. So I want to ask the question as a young mom now, what was that like having that conversation between you and mom about you going on this trip? Well, you know, I'm not uh, an adventurous person. I had never been an international traveler. I am not a daredevil. I'm very cautious. I'm very conservative and I like to have all my ducks in a row and I want to take care of my family and provide for them. But, uh, I just had this burning in my heart that this was something that God wanted me to do. I thought, am I going to be obedient or am I going to be afraid? Am I going to trust that God will provide for my family while I'm gone? that God will provide for my family if I don't come back, that, um, you know, God will protect me while I'm over there. Am I going to believe it or am I just going to say that I believe it? And it just became more and more uh, aware to me that this was what God wanted me to do, that God was opening these doors and that I had to step through them. And I think mom came to the realization, I mean, she had anxiety as well. And I think she had the same conversation. I have to trust that God, this is what you want Frank to do. And I don't want to be a stumbling block or stand in the way of uh, him doing what you want him mm -hmm. to do. Tell the story of the lady in the red jacket. Well... I mean, I didn't just talk to Herb and then we jumped on a plane two weeks later and flew over there because we had to plan everything and analyze everything. And as a result, while you're planning and analyzing, what well, gives the devil the opportunity to instill fear and, uh, in your, in your mind and in your, and he plays with you and, uh, it plays with your family. And it's worth mentioning again that it was 1997. It's pre-9-11. So it's, the, you know. It's pre-cell phones. Pre-cell phones, pre-almost all, pre-email, not quite. But, but there was not a lot of technology for you to contact people and vet things ahead of time. That's right. We uh, thought we were 
Americans and wise and knew what we were doing. So we were going to Tanzania, but did we fly to Tanzania? No, we flew to Nairobi, Kenya, <laughs> because the Methodist Church had a presence in Kenya, but they did not have a presence in Tanzania. So we contacted the office in Nairobi, Kenya, and we met a woman there, and she agreed to meet with us. And she sent us an email saying, when you arrive at the airport, I will be there waiting for you. I have a white face and I'll be wearing a red jacket. Hmm. Well, that was an answer prayer for Donna mm -hmm. because she was concerned who will pick them up? How will they be able to recognize them? And there was the answered prayer. The woman would have a white face in Kenya. The woman would have a red jacket on. And that gave mom a real peace that God was with us. Tell me about the first trip, some highlights of that first trip. Who was with you? Who did you meet? Bill Abernathy, Dwight Yoder, and me decided that we would fly to Nairobi, Kenya. We would meet with the Methodists there, and then we would take a, a small plane from Nairobi and fly to Morogoro, Tanzania. And there was no airport in Morogoro, so we flew a Cessna again, kind of like remembering back to Mexico. We uh, spent a few days in Kenya talking to the people there, and then a missionary pilot met us at the airport in Nairobi, and we flew to uh, Kilimanjaro and went through customs in Kilimanjaro and then flew on to Morogoro. There was no one there when we landed. And Herb Hofferman was supposed to meet us, but we were four hours late, so Herb had gone back to his house. So we land on this strip of grass, and, of course, an airplane flying over Morgora draws a crowd. And about the time that we got ready to get out of the plane, there were about, oh, I don't know, 40 or 50 uh, African children that had come out to see the plane land. And the pilot says, here you are. And we get out of the plane. And there's nobody there that we recognize, nobody there with a white face and a red jacket. Marianne Smith had coached us along the way as we were preparing. And when we would have anxiety, Marianne would say, guys, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. So when we got out of that airplane and there wasn't anybody there and we were surrounded by 50 African children speaking a language that we didn't understand. I told Bill, I think we've stepped out of the boat. <laughs> it wasn't, but just a little bit that uh, Herb arrived and uh, we went on our way. But we had our moment at that time. <laughs> that is such a wonderful story. And I love picturing three middle-aged white men standing in a field as the plane <laughs> flies away. Surrounded by all those children, what a beautiful scene. Tell us what you all learned from that first trip. We spent about 17 days 
in Tanzania. And we traveled to various areas surrounding the Morogoro area. We went into all three areas of the people groups that we were looking to adopt. The Kami area was one of the last areas that we went into. And I went back and looked at my notebook that I had kept while I was traveling. And I noticed last night as I was looking at it that I said when we traveled into the Kami area that I had a feeling, a sense of darkness that I hadn't felt in the other areas. You know, your podcast is called We Have This Hope. The line in my book said, the people in this area have no hope. Mm. Yes, there's poverty. Yes, there's disease. That was in all the areas. But in the other areas, there was hope. In mm. the Kami area, we had poverty, we had disease, but we had a darkness there that was something that you could feel. It was a presence that you could feel and they didn't have hope. Mm. And so that became our area of focus. We had the privilege of meeting an African man by the name of Jacob Mameo. And he was the most outgoing, exciting man. He knew everyone in the area, everywhere we went, he knew people. And I, I noticed in my notes that I said he was like a politician. Everywhere he went, he was glad handing everyone, getting out, talking to them. And he was just full of energy and excitement. And as we looked back on our time and when we got back together as a group, we identified areas that were, you know, this Kami area was an area that we wanted to focus in because the needs were great. The need was for, for seminary education for evangelists, native African people that could go into those areas, speak the language, but they needed to have training so that they'd be grounded and that they would know the gospel and know how to present it. There were health needs. The health care in the area was non-existent. One of the big areas that affected health care was fresh water, clean water. So those were the areas that we decided that we wanted to focus on. We wanted to focus in the Kami area. We wanted to try to train evangelists and pastors. We wanted to bring a health team into that area to improve health care. And we wanted to find a way to provide clean water for them to drink. Mm -hmm. That's how it got started. We were able to bring Jacob Mameo to the United States. He went to uh, the Lutheran Seminary in Seattle, Washington for a couple of years, and we were able to attend his graduation. Mm -hmm. And he became my lifelong friend, my brother in Tanzania. Talk about the first time Pastor Mameo came to Tulsa and stayed at our house. He was in school here in, in Seattle, Washington, and I believe it was either spring break. I believe it was spring break for him. And so we arranged for him to fly to Tulsa, and he stayed in our home. I mean, he had been in the United States, so he had seen how people in the United States live. But uh, I think one of the things that I'll always remember is when we were driving up to our house, I, without even thinking, 
I pushed the garage door opener and the door opened into the garage. And he looked at me and said, did they know you were coming? <laughs> he was flabbergasted that the door would open before we actually got there and had to get out of the car and open the garage. I think one of the other things that happened while he was there, you know, Oklahoma weather's crazy. So sometimes it can snow in March. And I think we had a little bit of snow and Mameo had never seen snow. So <laughs> it was, it was a great time. I remember dropping you off at the airport for that first 1997 trip and walking all the way to the gate because that was still a thing you could do. But my fondest memories are when Mameo stayed in our home. I remember he jumped on the trampoline <laughs> and he came to my soccer game. And we probably looked like quite the motley crew, but it was just such a, it really had a profound impact on me. And I know Lauren too, like we felt tied to the work that you were doing in Tanzania. And a lot of that was because we were able to build a relationship with Pastor Mameo. Talk a little bit about or summarize for us how the trips to Tanzania evolved over the years. Once we made the decision to get involved, we, we did get involved and we took several medical teams. And then after the first medical team, a member of our church, Grant Miller, a young man, decided that he felt like God was calling him to go to Tanzania and to be a part of the project there on a full-time basis. And Grant followed through with that and went and lived in Tanzania for about two or three years. And then we met another couple, Robert and Linda Spitaleri, Americans, and they uh, came to Tanzania and lived for several years. And so we had an American presence there along with Herb. The teams would go and participate with local Tanzanian physicians and we'd hold medical clinics and oh my goodness, thousands would come or four or 500 people a day would come to these villages and the, the local church would be the host of the medical team. And so that drew attention to the village church and their presence and how they were trying to help the community by bringing medical care to the area. And they were very successful. We had uh, dentists that went, we had physicians that went, we had optometrists that went and provided eyeglasses. Uh, there's a lot of sunshine in Tanzania, so cataracts are an issue. So we did that and then we again wanted to step into providing fresh water because that's the easiest way to prevent disease is to have clean water to drink. And Mark Dalton, another member of our congregation, was very interested in that. He had a background in the oil business, and so he was familiar with how to drill holes in the ground. And Mark Dalton took on the projects of drilling water wells in the areas where we had a established local village churches. All along, we were educating evangelists and pastors to fill those village churches. Mm -hmm. We would get one village church started and then they would immediately be wanting to start another one. It was like 
it just it just grew exponentially once we made the decision to be obedient and go into those areas. What was Pastor Mameo's role? How did his role evolve in that area? Well, he had received some training in Tanzania that after he came here to the United States and graduated from the seminary, he returned to Tanzania and worked in the role of what I would call a regional manager or a district superintendent. And he worked hand in hand with, with Reverend Hafferman five, six years into our project that he was elected the bishop of the Lutheran diocese in Moragoro. So, and he has been in that role for the last 20 years. Dad, there's so much more that I could ask you about, but I want to get to some questions about why all of this still matters in your life or what impact it had on you. So I'll ask the question, how has this experience influenced your view of God? Well, it's helped me to trust God. When, When we went to Tanzania, it was something that I had to do to step out in faith. And... I was rewarded for doing that. I saw the hand of God move, not only in 1997, but it continues to move and grow and flourish in Tanzania and everywhere else. And so now I have a faith and that's grounded in, and I can trust that God will be, God has a plan. And if we're faithful, if we're obedient, then we say in our communion liturgy, free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, that's the way I want to live. I want to live. I want to be free for joyful obedience, joyful obedience, not just drudgery and be obedient, but joyful obedience. And that's what I experienced when I went to Tanzania. And now that enables me to experience it in other areas of my life as well. Free me for joyful obedience because I can see God's hand moving everywhere. And I know that God's plan is true. It will be accomplished and that I get to participate in it. So I'm free to be obedient and joyfully obedient. It's an exciting time. How has this experience influenced your hope? When we use the word hope, we throw it around a little bit and we say, well, I hope it doesn't rain. I hope uh, that I'm not late to work. I hope that my football team wins this weekend. Um, But when Christians use the word hope, I think it's deeper. It's, it's, It's more... It's a much richer word than that. It's it's a hope that's grounded in our faith and trust in God as our provider. It's a feeling of expectation. It's a eager anticipation of seeing what God's doing and wanting to be a part of that. In Hebrews 11.1, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the assurance of things hoped for. We know God has a plan and we get to participate in it. Assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
we don't see all the picture right now. We don't see right all the picture right now. Today we look in a mirror dimly. We see in a mirror dimly, but we have a hope because we know God's in, in control and He's got a plan. So that's our hope. That's a much deeper word. Mm-hmm. That's a much better hope. Yep. That's great. Is there anything else you want to say about how you how you've grown through the experience of being involved in God's work in Tanzania? It has uh, taught me that. You know, I don't know everything. It has uh, given me a confidence that if God is in control, that we don't have to be fearful, that we don't have to be, that we don't have to overanalyze it, that we don't have to try to Americanize it. We don't have to try to make it fit into our box. We just have to be faithful and trust and be joyfully obedient. And, and then we get to see the mighty hand of God working. It's, it's, it's fun. Dad, thank you for sharing all of that. I, I really feel like we could do a part two of this episode, but I won't do that to you <laughs> soon. And I want to say, I said this to Dad at the beginning, that I really appreciate and can see in what you had to say the time and the level of seriousness that you took to telling this story, because it's a story that matters in the kingdom of God. At the beginning, I said, what's mom doing? And he said, oh, she's in the other room praying for me, which is also just a beautiful picture of my mom and her partnership with dad in the gospel in Tanzania. She's been with him. I had the joy and privilege of going when I turned 18. Also, this was really God's work in our family, too, because of the work he was doing through you. What has it been like to remember? It has brought this wonderful, warm feeling in my heart to remember going to Tanzania. I really, when I got out my journal last night and uh, read through that, where I was just writing down everything that was happening to me. My, I was on sensory overload mm-hmm. when I was writing those words. And as I read those words off those pages, all these pictures and even taste and smells came rushing back vividly to me. Mm-hmm. And it was a time in which God blessed me so abundantly. It was mm-hmm. just a it made me feel really warm and good. It was a wonderful feeling. I thank you for encouraging me to do this and sharing it. I thank you for letting me share it. Mm-hmm. It has always been something that's easy to share. It always will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, was a, made a big impact on my life and will always be dear to me. I didn't even tell you about this part, but this is just a fun, casual part. I always like to end an interview by asking people a lighthearted question just to wrap up. So my question for you is, what's a project that you're working on now that you're really enjoying? Well, retirement has been a little bit unsettling to me. Uh, Your four-year-old son, Avid when you mentioned that I was going to retire, said that 
he didn't have trouble understanding the word retirement. And he said that I was graduating. <laughs> and so I have, I like that word better than retirement. I have graduated from working mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I had a presence. You said I didn't have a presence on social media. It's, I have a presence. It's a very uh, small presence. Oh. And I did have a LinkedIn account, you know, that had all this stuff about me. And I've been contemplating going in and changing my profile to professional grandfather. Ooh. Because that is one of my projects. I'm becoming uh-huh. a professional grandfather, which I enjoy tremendously. Uh-huh. And then, of course, the other project that we're involved in currently was we're fortunate enough to be part of a support team for a family of Afghan refugees that came to Tulsa in 2021. And it's a family of 14, now 15, because we just had a baby. <laughs> and they are lovely people. And uh, it's an opportunity for me as a retired man uh, that may not make too many more international trips <laughs> to serve international missions right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Really feel God brought these people to us because he has a plan of redemption for them. Mm-hmm. And we get the opportunity to be a part of that plan. It's an, it is so much fun. It's frustrating. It's hard work. But it's so much fun. So I'm a professional grandfather, and I'm becoming a member of an Afghan family here in That's Tulsa. Right. That's right. Uh, you've been, you and mom have officially been adopted into the fold, I think. Thank you for taking the time to tell that story, Dad. I love you, and I'm proud of you. I'm proud to be your daughter. And I'm going to go post about this on social media. Okay. Thank you for having me. It was, a, it was really a, something I was anxious about, but it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me.